The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, we come now to a time to open up God's Word together. I'd like to invite you to take a copy of the Scriptures and open with me to the Matthew, uh, Gospel of Matthew. Gospel according to Matthew in the New Testament. You can find that on page 835. If you need a Bible in the pew rack, do, do grab one in front of you if you need one. Uh, or uh, the large print Bible, the student Bible, the children's Bible. All the pages are in there. Uh, we are a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. And so let's open the Scriptures together uh, as we go this morning to Matthew's Gospel. Now, uh, let me say some things by way of introduction to our text uh, before we read it. Uh, and I'll try to be very clear about this. There has never been a time... When the Christian faith uh, could get a pass and be lazy about clarifying what we believe, the Christian church must always be clear because, as with every age, you and I live in a time that majors on opinions and seems to only minor in facts, a time that is full of noise and devoid of clarity. So I want to be very clear about what it is that we believe today, as we've already summarized it in the creed that we confess, that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, and that Jesus rose again three days later, bodily, physically, historically, and then 40 days later ascended into heaven, where he reigns at the Father's right hand to one day return in his glorious appearing. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what we believe. And what we mean when we say this is what we believe is this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the truth. To borrow a term from the 20th century apologist Francis Schaeffer, the gospel of Jesus is true truth. Real truth, in other words. Absolute reality. And that matters because, very clearly, you and I live in a time when truth claims are a dime a dozen, that truth is oftentimes seen as entirely subjective, meaning something can be true for you, but doesn't necessarily need to be true for your neighbor or someone else, that we are encouraged to speak our truth, regardless of whether or not it's based in fact or reality, it can be our truth and no one can say anything about it because it's ours anyway. No one is allowed to question or challenge it. But friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not merely our truth as Christians. It is the truth. It is the true truth. Church, let us say without hesitation or embarrassment, we believe in Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And rather than reject the questions or get offended when anybody would challenge us about our assertions, the Christian faith warmly invites and indeed even welcomes objections, scrutiny, or the opportunity to clarify what we mean when we say what we believe. Because the Christian faith is verifiable. Still, there have been no shortage of those who would reject the truth claims of Jesus. And this is nothing new. In fact, it's as old as the first Easter morning. And that's what I want us to see together today in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you've got your copy of God's Word open, let's prepare our hearts as we pray and hear God's Word together. Gracious God, we turn now to the Scriptures uh, because it is here we believe that You reveal Your living Word and truth to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your very living Word. And so, Father, we pray that by Your Holy Spirit that we might encounter Christ Jesus. 
that as it were, He would come and speak to us His word of authority, His word of hope and comfort, His word of peace. Lord, no matter where we are today, You are the God who has made us. You are the God who is able to speak to us in ways that we can hear. So Lord, by Your Spirit, speak we pray, and give us ears to hear and hearts ready to receive with faith the word that You speak. Bless now the reading and hearing and proclamation of Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be reading from Matthew 27 at verse 62 through 28, verse 15. This is the Word of God. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen, as He said. Come, see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead, and behold, that He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell His disciples And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell My brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see Me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel... They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God abides Forever, So uh, may He write its truth on our hearts uh, and keep your Bible open as we see now the Scriptures. I want you to pay attention to this detail, and I want you to pay attention to this detail very closely, the detail of the empty tomb. And I wonder if you've ever thought about it this way. That the women come early in the morning. Uh, they're intended to, 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 to kind of redress and do the burial uh, uh, traditions and spices as the Jews would have it. The women come to the garden tomb. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 28, verse 2, that an angel had already come and rolled the stone away with uh, the fanfare of it. 
to reveal the empty tomb? You say, yes, of course. And when the stone is rolled back, even more so, of course, Jesus is not inside of the tomb, which is why we call it empty. You say, my goodness, thank you so much. Uh, The empty tomb. So the angel's words in verse 6, Matthew 28, verse 6, is this. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, come, see the place where he lay. Do you notice, notice this, that the stone of the tomb is not rolled back, as it were, to let Jesus out. But why? To let the women in. And to let you and I in and come and see and behold for ourselves. The empty tomb is a point of corroborating evidence for the resurrection. Jesus is risen. And if you want to know, look for yourself. Go and see, they say. Take a look. What do you see? Well, you're here. You're here this morning. You came perhaps under your own will, or perhaps you were dragged here under threat of penalty, or something in between. Uh, If you wanted to have Easter lunch with the family, you must come to church. Uh, Well, I would say someone raised you right. Well, so here you are. The record of the empty tomb is spread before you. What do you have to say? Come and see for yourself. Well, let me share with you a, a trio of men and their opinions about this. First of all, the famous 20th century Atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell, his definition of faith was this. Faith is believing in something for which there is no evidence. And the conclusion of his famous 1927 essay, Why I Am Not a Christian, says this. The Christian faith is based only in fear. Just a bunch of sad and scared people looking for something to help them feel better about themselves. It echoes the critique of Karl Marx from a previous century who referred to religion as the opium of the people. Just something to help sad people get through their sad existence and make them feel a bit better. And more specifically, in the 21st century, still living, Richard Dawkins said, the resurrection is nothing more than religious propaganda. Very effective with an audience of unsophisticated people. And children. Unsophisticates. Now maybe you have family, friends, neighbors, or co-workers who take the same line of reasoning and dismiss the claims of Christianity as easy as they pass over one pair of socks in their drawer for another pair of socks, thinking nothing of it, dismissing the entire thing outright. Maybe they do. But Christian believer, that doesn't mean you should sit on your hands and say nothing about it. It doesn't mean that you should sit back with nothing to say because the Christian faith is eminently reasonable. Verifiable, in fact. Now let me say... Something of a kind of behind-the-door peek into the mind of a preacher here. There are a lot of different kinds of Easter sermons that a pastor can preach on Easter. uh, And I have avoided preaching this one. Not because I don't think it's important, that is, defending the evidence of the resurrection. Not because I think it's unimportant, but because it seems like everybody's already heard it. What I'm going to present to you and lay out for you by way of evidence or argument or theory seems like some kind of worn-out old VW bus that's taken another lap around the block that everybody's already seen go by, sputtering already with kind of unimpressive uh, rims and wheels. Everyone's already seen this, but 
uh, I want to appreciate the fact that our session of elders encouraged me to preach this sermon because these points are still relevant in this modern age. And they're right, of course. They're right. And it seems like everybody already knows this, but let's take a run at it anyway, all right? Let's get straight to it. There are only five possible explanations for all of this resurrection business. Think critically with me this morning. There's only five possible explanations here. And I think these five possibilities are translated across time and history such that these various accusations and claims have been made in the past and are still being made to this day, even if they take different shapes. You've got an empty tomb. You've got to explain it. What's the explanation? I say, well, you've got five options. Historically, one of the first options is called the swoon theory. This theory says that when Jesus suffered and was crucified, that he didn't actually die, but that he fainted, and that the temperate cold of the stone tomb revived him from his unconscious but not dead state. 39 lashes, nails, and a pierced pericardium, but no death. Now listen, there is no serious historian that actually believes this. Secular or atheist, religious, across the board, there is no serious person who actually believes this because Roman soldiers were professional executioners. They were good at their jobs. When they intended to kill someone, they did it. Now, we can also note the fact the confession of Jesus' own followers was that he really died, that he was dead. This is, by the way, why the disciples are so hopeless on Sunday morning, because when the women are running to tell them, the disciples believe that the one that they followed for these three years was dead, and that means all of their hopes died with him, and all of their anticipation of a revival of Israel as a theocratic nation-state was doomed because their Messiah was dead. He died. He really died. If he wasn't dead, the disciples would have never recorded it this way. The swoon theory doesn't hold any water whatsoever. What about this one? A second theory is called the hallucination theory, and it basically says this. Jesus did die, but he didn't rise, and the apostles were deceived. They were passively deceived about the reality of the resurrection, the hallucination theory. Now let me say very clearly, hallucinations are individual experiences. Hallucinations are not corporate experience. I can't say to you, hey, what did you think of my dream last night? Because you didn't dream it. I did. You can't enter into the experience of my dream because you don't know it from last night. Or you can't call somebody up in the middle of the night and say, man, I'm in the middle of the best dream ever. Join me, will you? Join me in my hallucination. They can't be shared. Friends, it would take a lot of faith, way more faith to believe that 500 people experienced the exact same hallucination together, it would take more faith to believe that than to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Help you if you believe that. It is more plausible to believe in Jesus' resurrection than a collective hallucination. Now, this is shocking, but people still believe it. And my most favorite version of this hallucination theory is that in the last couple of years, as it were, there were scientists that did some testing and they said, well, we found bacteria in the water around Jerusalem, that there was polluted water, and so there was hallucinogenic properties in the water around Jerusalem so that when the disciples drank, they had a group trip. 
Okay? This is what I call the mushroom juice theory of the resurrection. Okay? It holds no water whatsoever, not even hallucinogenic water. So hallucination theories, or whether or not they kind of passively hallucinated, but rather they were deluded themselves, that is to say, they wanted Jesus to be raised so much that they believed it was true. And this theory says it's not true, but because they believed it so much, it was to them. That's, again, this idea of subjective truth. They wanted Jesus to be alive so much that their desires deluded them into believing it is true. Now, think about this for a moment. Jesus' own half-brother, James, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, called his brother a fool, didn't believe in what he was saying. He was, in fact, embarrassed to be from the same family. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, after the resurrection, ends up calling his half-brother the Lord. Anybody with a rival relationship with a sibling going to willingly bow down before your sibling and call them the Lord God Almighty if it's not a reality? Or perhaps Saul of Tarsus, then the Apostle Paul, he was not hoping for this to be true when he was persecuting Christians in the first century. The Christian faith is not based on private delusion, but public verifiable witness. That is what distinguishes the Christian faith from all other worldview system theories or world religions. That everything begins with a private speculative experience that is then promoted publicly and people ask you to believe their private personal experience in contrast to the Christian faith which begins with public experience, is testified by public experience, and publicly verifiable. Not a delusion. Not a hallucination. Or what about this one? The conspiracy theory that Jesus died and he didn't rise because this time the apostles were actively deceiving the world. The hallucination theory says they were passively deceived. The conspiracy says no, no, the apostles were actively deceiving. They were actively lying. This is what we call the stolen body theory. They stole the body to lie about the resurrection. And if that was the case, all you would have to say is what? Show us the body. Show us the body. We find that here in Matthew 28, don't we? We could say, here's it where the disciples are all, he's risen, he's risen indeed. And all the Pharisees have to say is, no, he's not. See? We can prove it to you. The whole thing ends right there. Interestingly, actually, it was not the disciples who had connived this idea in the first place, but this is the very plan of the religious leaders. Look back in Matthew 27 and verse 64. This is the very thing that they are worried about, which is why there's a guard at the tomb in the first place, so that no one can come, roll back the stones, steal the body, and say, He's risen, and lie, right? And then to explain the whole thing, they say, well, what are we going to do about this? Now back into Matthew 28, verse 13, the guards come back to the Jewish authorities and they say, don't know what to tell you, but this is what happened. And the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the chief priests say, listen, guys, rather than attempt to discredit the resurrection, let's just say they stole it. Let's just say that they stole the body and, listen, if they really believed that, if the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders really believed that, all they would need to do was set out to steal it back, right? But that isn't what happens. Instead of saying, let's steal the body back, their plan is, hush money. Here. Shut your mouth. 
and forever go down in history as the most impotent, worthless Roman soldiers of all time. Overcome by a group of Jewish women, Roman soldiers. The plan is hush money. Why? See this very clearly. Because there's no body. There's no body to steal. There's no body to steal back. If they really believe that that's what happened, there's no body and they know it. And they pay off the guards. We'll cover for you. When Pilate finds out, we've got your back. And so Matthew reports in Matthew 28, verse 15, this is the story that's been spread among the Jews. And this is the story that's been spread among a secular world since that time. It's all conspiracy, right? It's all just conspiracy. The accusation is that the disciples wanted some kind of reform movement and to overtake the Roman Empire. But when their man dies, any other reform movement would have gotten a new hero or given up the plot entirely. But they don't pick a new Messiah and they don't give up on what they're saying. They say, no, actually, he's alive. He rose from the dead. If this was an embellishment, if it was a conspiracy, it would have the markers of expanding embellishment that conspiracies often have. That's why we call them fish stories, right? Because they get bigger. Next thing you know, oh, Jesus, he's emerging from the tomb and throwing the rock over the mountains and emerging from the tomb with a jetpack. No, that's ridiculous, right? There is no expanding embellishment about the resurrection. It's just a simple story. He's not here. He rose, just like he said. Now again, if you want to believe that 12 Galilean fishermen upended the Roman Empire all on the basis of a conspiracy, go ahead and believe that. But again, I say, it takes less faith to be convinced of that than to be convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, another one, another option perhaps, is that the whole thing is a myth. That Jesus died and He didn't rise because all this Christianity business, all this resurrection nonsense is just a bunch of hubba-baloo, tall-tale, garbage, religious mythology. They made it all up. They made the whole thing up. Now, if you want to believe that, you will somehow have to convince yourself that the disciples believed in personal resurrection because they didn't. The disciples did not conceive of resurrection the way Jesus is raised. To the Jewish mind, the, the concept of resurrection was intended for corporate entities. Uh, when we speak of resurrection the way the Jews would understand it, we would say, oh, my football team has risen from the ashes and risen to prominence and wins the championship. My team has been resurrected. It's, it's a corporate entity where a group experience kind of rises from shame out of the ashes into victory. And the Jewish people believed that Israel was going to be resurrected corporately. The Jewish people did not believe in personal grave emptying. So they couldn't have made it up because they never even conceived of this reality in the first place. Friends, the first century Jewish disciples are just as sensible about these things as you and I. And it's actually quite arrogant of the modern world to assume that we're far more sensible about all this resurrection business than they are when they didn't believe in it either. People weren't randomly rising from the dead on Tuesdays in the first century just like they aren't now. That's why there are morgues and that's why Whelan Presley is in business. Because we know this doesn't just happen. Right? Utterly foolish to think that 2,000 years ago people were somehow less sensible about this point than you and I. Now here's the thing. These counterclaims, these contradictory explanations, 
they again seem like this tired old bus that's coming around the block again because they've been touted for centuries and they just don't hold up. They just don't work. And it's fascinating to me now that modern skeptics and unbelievers, they don't even argue these points anymore. Do you know why? Because they say, we don't know and we don't care. We don't need a theory about all of it because we don't give a rip about it in the first place. And fascinatingly, actually, it ends up being those people who profess to be Christian believers but who are embarrassed about what the Christian faith teaches who end up trying to explain away the resurrection like it's some kind of allegory or tall tale. If you're a Christian, don't be embarrassed about what you believe about Jesus. Don't try to find some alternative theory or explanation. Believe what the Bible said. That won't do. So, here's where we find ourselves. Either Jesus didn't die and couldn't rise, or Jesus did die and the disciples themselves were deceived or deceivers, or the whole thing's just a bunch of bunk, or I've got one more option for you. You ready? Matthew 28, verse 6. I think it's quite compelling. The angel says, He is not here. He is risen. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. No hallucination, no conspiracy, no myth, nothing other than the historical, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is the Son of God and the Savior of all who believe. Now on Easter, we confess this. But we also confess it throughout the year because this is what we believe both inwardly in our hearts, as Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you will be saved from all of your sins. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you believe it is because He died for your sins and was raised for your eternal forgiveness. If you believe that and confess it in your heart, you will be forgiven and eternally saved. But we don't just inwardly believe it in our hearts. We also outwardly confess it in our worship. When you look down to Matthew 28, verse 9, it says, When they came upon Jesus, they fall down before Him and they worship Him, saying, My Lord and my God, my risen Savior. We believe. We confess in our hearts and outwardly by way of our worship. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And in Jesus Christ, friends, there is endless hope for time and eternity. Both the forgiveness of your sins and peace of conscience now and the eternal abiding presence of God for all time because Jesus Christ has lived and died and risen for you. I hope you believe that. I hope you believe it with all of your heart. And I hope you are unashamed to confess it before a watching world. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. Come and see for yourself. He lives. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice 
on Easter Sunday to confess without shame Christ Himself risen for us. Risen for our justification. Risen that we might have an abiding hope and an eternal presence in Your kingdom. O God, move amongst us by Your Spirit to fill all of our hearts with faith and to confront us with the reality of the empty tomb and the truth of the living Savior. We pray in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.